I've been married, oh my word, I'm the worst with dates, but I've been married to my husband 38, 37 years, something like that. We have three daughters, um, and I have five grandchildren. And I, and it's so funny, because we had a run on girls in our family. I had the three daughters, which I love being a girl mom. I'm really, I love being a girl mom. I mean, not that, I'm sure sons are wonderful. They are. And I, and I love son-in-laws, let me tell you. I'm, I'm learning that part of things. I'm like, oh, these big strapping guys, and I can ask them to do stuff for me. Um, <laughs> it's great. They want to please me, you know, that's good. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I have these two nice son-in-laws, and, and then I had four granddaughters, one after another. And my poor husband, not, he loves them. He's crazy about them. But, um, you know, we we're kind of thinking, will we ever get some testosterone in this lineage here? And then we did. We got uh, this year, he'll be, he'll be one in January. We got Noah Knox, a little blue-eyed, chubby, roly-poly, and we just adore him. So, yeah, so that's kind of my story. Um, I got saved when I was 19, 18, 18, just in between the uh, summer of my senior year and my first year at college. I went to Manhattan College in the Bronx. I grew up right outside the Bronx um, and got saved and came out of craziness, which I'll tell you a little bit later, but um, ended up meeting my husband at our youth group. So I love, I see all these beautiful young faces. And can I just say, and this is not to flatter, wow, Miami women, wow, you're pretty, you're beautiful women, and the young girls, so glad to have you here, because that was how, I, when I got saved, I was right around your age, and my husband and I, both around that time, had gotten saved, he had gotten saved a few years before me, and I met him at youth group and all that, and at first, I didn't even care, you know, about boys, because I was just so coming to Jesus, I was falling in love with Jesus, but then he was a little hard to ignore, he was six foot two, big bodybuilder, very cute, big blue eyes, you know, and very fun, and um, and so, biggest surprise of all, I get married while I'm still in college. Uh, coming out of my background, I was very bitter, and never said, I'm not getting married ever, they never works out, never works out, you know, and every example I had in my life, unfortunately, was divorce and alcoholism and abuse and those kinds of things, so I had pretty much decided at the ripe old age of 17 or 18 that I would never get married, um, or at least I would have to get married a few times, you know, make it stick kind of thing, and, um, you know, I just had this great view of life, you know, and so anyway, um, but I did get married, and no one was more surprised than me at, at 21 years old. And, uh, and so it has been my husband, maybe some of you know him, Pastor Bobby Hargraves from Calvary Chapel Hudson Valley, which is Poughkeepsie, New York, about 60 miles north of Manhattan. That's where we live now. Um, He's on your radio here. I'm not sure when, but he is. And uh, I think he's been down here and he loves you guys. He wants to say hello to everyone. And um, <clears throat> I always kid around because people who know Bob, he's a lot of fun. And I say it's been like Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. Is that like a Disney reference, right? Being married to Bob. Um, and so we started a Bible study in our home back in 1994. I just had a um, five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a newborn. My husband decided that we need to start a Bible study, that the Lord would possibly be starting a Calvary Chapel in our area because we had been in other churches and we were just growing restless. We needed that, that, that teaching style of Calvary that we heard on the radio. We had never attended a Calvary, but we heard all these great Calvary Chapel pastors on a radio station coming out of Long Island. So he said, yeah, we're gonna start this Bible study and you know, we're gonna see if the Lord will start a church in our area, Calvary Chapel, and then they're gonna send a pastor to pastor it. Well, 
28 years later. We're still waiting for that pastor to show up. <laughs> no, but we, you know, the Lord had, had him there already. So <clears throat> that's been our journey. Started in our living room. The church has grown uh, tremendously, and uh, we're just really honored and blessed, and we just are spectators of what God has done, right? We just get to watch God show off and, and use frail, broken, foolish creatures such as ourselves to show his glory so that he gets all the glory and he's the source of all wisdom. So I am honored to be here today. Alicia and Amanda and Isel, lovely, lovely women. I don't need to tell you that. Love them. They're sweet. They, I just feel like truly family. And they asked me to come and speak today on the theme of joy, and <clears throat> which is great. I was like, yeah, love that theme, love the theme of joy. But I'm old, so I have to put on my glasses. But, um, but then it, she kind of threw me a little curveball. She said, and I want you to teach joy out of the book of Esther. And I was like, huh? <laughs> because to be honest, you know, I've done Women's Bible Study for a couple of decades now, and I've taught the book of Esther a few times, and I've read it so many times, right? But joy was never my big takeaway from the book of Esther. I'll just be completely honest. You know, if I was thinking of something like sovereignty, yes, you know, but joy, hmm, hmm, how do I teach that out of that book? And a concordance search will reveal that the word rejoice and joy and gladness is definitely used in the book of Esther in the, in the uh, final chapters of chapters 8 and 9, which we'll get to later in the day. But when the Jewish people have received sanction to go and fight against their enemies and defend themselves against those who would annihilate them. So certainly that's, that's, that's good. That's a source of joy. But I kept struggling with, I was reading and reading and studying, Lord, how do I teach and encourage the women of Calvary Chapel, Miami to walk in joy using the book of Esther when it's a book that never mentions the name of God. It never mentions prayer per se. It mentions fasting. It doesn't describe prayer. You know, so many books have these beautiful prayers in them, even like First Chronicles, right? There's so many prayers in the Bible. There's not an actual prayer here that we can refer to. Um, worship, it, rejoicings mentioned, but the worship of the Lord is not named. It's maybe implied, but it's not named. And, and in fact, scholars and commentators have had struggled with even, especially Jewish scholars, had struggled with the idea of even including Esther in the canon of scripture because it seemed more like a very straight secular historical book, certainly important to the history of the Jewish people. Um, and in fact, for the first seven centuries of the Christian church, no one even wrote a commentary on the book of Esther. So it was sort of like, I was wrestling with this and I'm like, Lord, show me how, show me how. You know, I want to be true to the book of Esther. I know there'll be a lovely crowd above me. I don't want to forget her. I don't want to say, oh yeah, Esther, and then bounce and leave the book, you know, and, and just do the theme of joy. I want to, I want to dig in. I want to, show me, Lord. And, and, I, and as I did that, I, suddenly I really sensed the Holy Spirit speaking to my heart and he said, Liz, stop fussing and embrace the dissonance embrace the discord. Now, musicians use this term dissonance to describe a lack of harmony between musical notes that causes a clash or a tension in the sound. Many times classical music has this, jazz music, gospel music sometimes uses dis discordant, what we call discordant chords or dissonant chords. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It can add interest and contrast to music. 
In fact, everyone from Bach to Alicia Keys has used dissonant chords in composing their music. And we love their music, don't we? This journey of dissonance, this journey of dissonance into joy in the book of Esther is what we will do for the next several hours. <laughs> Finding joy in a book that's really about crisis, a book that tells the account of a people group who are living in a place far from home, far from where they belong, and, and they're in the midst of a, a culture of idolatry, revelry, does it sound familiar? Violence, evil, rulers, threats. This account is about personal crisis and corporate crisis. There's a threat of annihilation, genocide of a people group, the Jews. There's fear and anxiety within the hearts of certain people in this book. We're gonna look at this young woman named Hadassah who was raised in a foreign land, an orphan raised by a cousin. Her, word, her name, Hadassah, means myrtle, tree, fragrant, beautiful, righteous, who rises to become a queen, a Persian queen. Uh, her name, Esther, meaning star in that language. But this was not an easy journey. She became queen through harrow, harrowing and difficult circumstances. And honestly, girls, this is why it's important, because isn't that our lives? Isn't there dissonance in our lives? Knowing that we're to be women of God who walk in joy, but yet we walk through crises, do we not? And circumstances in our own life? We know we're to be people of joy. It's absolutely an integral part of being a born again believer in Jesus to have the joy of the Lord as part of our life. But yet we find it challenging at times. If we're real, we can come in here and put our happy face on, but isn't it hard? at times and challenging to walk in joy in a world in the midst of circumstances that seem bent on robbing our joy. Just put on the news for an hour or so every morning, right? We, uh, gosh, what we've just all been through corporately as a nation. We know scriptures like James 1-2 that says, my brethren, my sisters, count it all joy. Count it, meaning esteem it, reckon on it, Count it all joy, gladness, cheerfulness, and delight. When? When a baby's born? No, when you fall into various difficulties, trials, adversities. There's a dissonant chord if there ever was one. Joy, delight, when I'm going through the worst times? Is that possible? In 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18, it says, Rejoice always, always, no matter what. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. Now, sometimes as Christians, and it says, For this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Sometimes we're, we're good at enduring, gritting our teeth and bearing all things. But are we joyful in all things? Are we rejoicing in all things? Lord, can we do this? I want to, Lord. I want this to be true of me. So I, I'm sure you do as well. Absolutely. Who wouldn't want to be known as a joyful woman? Wouldn't you love that? If people were talking about you and you came up on them, they said, oh, she's so joyful. Wouldn't we love to hear that about ourselves? Is it possible? I pray, I know it is. The Lord says it is, and he says it, we believe it. That settles it, right? 
But how? How do we get there? I hope that we will receive encouragement and direction in this. So the first thing I want to do this morning is open to the book of Esther, and we are going to get ourselves here a definition of joy, to work with a good definition of it. So what we're going to do is we're going to read the first 12 verses of the book of Esther, if you would turn in your Bibles with me. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahuzerus that this, this was the Ahuzerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. In those days when King Ahuzerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel, that in the third year of his reign he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. And when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan, the citadel, from great to small in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars, and the couches were of gold and silver, on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, and white and black marble. And they served drinks and golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other, with royal wine in abundance according to the generosity of the king. In accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory, for so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. And the seventh day when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Bizda, Arbona, Biktha, Abaktha, Zethar, and Carcass, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown, in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold." But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, brought by his eunuchs. Therefore, the king was furious, and his anger burned within him. I just want to mention there that some commentators believe that he was asking Vashti to come completely without clothes on, but just her crown, to show off, because these were drunken men who had been drinking for days and days, immoral, ungodly men. And she refused to come. Even if she had been asked to come unveiled, that in itself would have been an affront to her in that culture. So right here in this scene, I feel using it as a springboard to define joy, I want to talk what joy is and what it is not. Here we have this Persian king. The time frame is 53 years after the edict from King Cyrus has been given to the people of of Israel who have been in captivity for 70 years. Now we know most of the Old Testament is leading up to that captivity, the prophets coming and telling them all that because of their idolatry that they will be taken away by the Babylonians and they were. And the prophet Jeremiah said they'd be in there for 70 years and they even name years before it even happens this King Cyrus that after 70 years God in his mercy would give them an opportunity to go back and resettle the land. Well that has happened and it's about 53 years after that. So obviously not all the Jews left. Actually a small percentage of them went and they went back to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem and that's recorded in the book of Ezra. And then there's this time frame here. Later on, Nehemiah will be sent from that king, his grandson, 
will later on, or his son, I should say, will eventually let Nehemiah go back and rebuild the wall. So we're smack dab between those two books, the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah. And so this king, and I'm going to call him Xerxes, because that's easier to say than a Hazarus for me anyway, um, he is right at this time historically getting ready to have a war with the Greeks. Now, in Daniel's prophecy, who was one of the ones who were taken captive during that Babylonian captivity, Daniel in his prophecies described different kingdoms that would come. So there was the Babylonians, then there was the Medo-Persians, which is this, this kingdom here. He's, this man is part of that empire. And after that would come the Greeks, who would Hellenize the world. And that is very significant because our New Testament was written in Greek. So God's ways go on in history, don't they? He just lays in things. He's always at work. He's always at work doing something. So this man knows that the Greeks are becoming very large and a threat to him. He wants to wage a war against them. He wants to invade Greece. That's what's going on here with this party. He wants to get everybody on board with this military campaign. So he has all these princes there from all over his kingdom, all over his empire, 127 of them, and he's regaling them with his wealth and his splendor and his excellent majesty. And believe it or not, he will go into that war between chapter 1 and chapter 2 of the book of Esther. There's a four-year period lapse between those two chapters of the book of Esther. But unfortunately, he will not be successful against the Greeks. So, but in order to garner this military support, he has this lavish party. So, in the world's estimation, this party in these 12 verses kind of describes what I think the world thinks joy is. It's money, right? It's power. It's party. Every commercial you see on TV includes these things, Right? I, I recently, there some Allstate or some says, we've learned that seeing young people having fun in a pool sells insurance, right? I mean, but isn't that so true? And then they show them, oh, oh, you know, with the, with the iPads, oh, with State Farm, something like that. <laughs> Parties, laughter, ha, 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 revelry, money, lots of money, lots of plenty, lots of power and prestige and success, right? Beautiful people in beautiful places, beautiful homes, lots of ease and leisure time. But we know this isn't joy. This is happiness because it's based on happenstance. It's based on circumstance. And we know this. We're good Christian women. We know, oh, there's a difference between joy and happiness because happiness is fleeting, right? Happiness comes and goes. We know that. But on some level, if we're really honest, and I've been super honest before the Lord, I had to do, take this journey myself, right, before God, about joy. What do I really think joy is? Have I just given it a Christianized version of those things? Like Sunday dinners, worship services. These are all joyful. They are. Having the kids around, having my grandkids, the birth of a baby, the weddings at church, right? Joyful. Women's conferences, yay, joyful, right? The laughter of our kids where they're laughing in the pool or on the beach, taking long. We think of these things as joyful too, and they are friendships. But they absolutely do bring us joy. But when I say the word joy, do we picture the hospital room? Do we picture the graveside? Do we picture the war zone? Do we picture when a uh, husband comes home and says, I got fired today? I got laid off? Do we picture when we don't have enough money to make the electric bill this month? The mortgage? 
when the guy we did not want in office gets in office? <laughs> During persecution and slander, you hear people have been talking trash about you or your husband. Do we picture those things, the prison cell? Is that what we think of in our mind when we hear joy? See, I think the Bible says that we can have joy even in those things. That we can, it's possible to rejoice even in those things. Let's get back to our account in Esther. We see here Xerxes is mad. He's angry because Vashti will not come. So we're going to read in verses 13 to 22. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner towards all who knew law and justice, those closest to him being, I'm not going to read all those names. <laughs> what shall we do to Queen Vashti according to law? Because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs. And Mimukin answered before the king and the princes, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes when they report King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in and she did not come. This very day the noble ladies of Persia Mida will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen thus there will be excessive contempt and wrath and if it pleases the king let the royal decree go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it will not be altered that Vashti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. When the king's decree which he will make is proclaimed throughout all of his empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. And the reply pleased the king. Do you see how many times this man has to be pleased? Pleased the king. And the princes and the king did according to the word of Mimukin. Then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in its own script, and to every people in their own language, that each man should be master in his own house and speak in the language of his own people. So, what we have here, girls, is a bunch of intoxicated men getting really bent out of shape from something that maybe she was somewhat justified in not coming, possibly, possibly, but that's not really the point. They decide they're gonna legislate respect. You must respect your husband. We can legislate this. How foolish. Can you do that? No. But because they overreacted and he was a man prone to folly, what could have just ended there with just those people that were at that particular private dinner party knowing what had happened, now every single person is going to know it happened. It's just such an overreaction. You know, in Job 20, verse 5, it says, The exulting of the wicked is short. And the joy of the godless is but for a moment. One minute they're at the heights of revelry, and now they're all bent out of shape. So Vashti is deposed, and between chapters one and two, like I said, he had, he had launched this military campaign and lost. The next chapter, what we're going to see here, is what we know about Esther being brought in to the king's palace. Now, after this loss that he suffered, he, they say to him, let beautiful virgins, in verse 2 of chapter 2, be brought for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan. 
and bring him into the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women, and let beauty preparations be given them. Then let the young women who please the king be queen instead of Vashti. This king pleased, this thing pleased the king, and he did so. In Shushan, the citadel, there was more, a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite. And I'm just going to go down to verse 7. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So it was when the king's command and decree were heard, and when many young women were gathered Shushan the citadel under the custody of Hegai, that Esther also was taken to the king's palace and into the care of Haggai, the custodian of the women. Now the young woman pleased him, and she obtained his favor. So he readily gave beauty preparations to her besides her allowance. Then seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. Esther had not revealed her people or family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. And every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. Each young woman's turn came to go into King Ahuzerus, after she had completed 12 months preparation according to the regulations for the women. Thus prepared, in verse 13, each woman went into the king and into the, and then look in verse 14, I'm kind of want to go through this quickly. In the evening she went in and in the morning she returned to the second house of the women to the custody of Shagaz, the king's eunuch who kept the concubines. Then she would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and called for her by name. Now when the turn turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women advised, and Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who knew her. So Esther was taken to King Ahuserus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast the feast of Esther, for all his officials and servants, and he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of the king. Okay, so here we see it. Things are turning, right? Esther is brought into the palace, and she is chosen by this king to be the next queen of Persia. However, <clears throat> when we look at this, girls, I have, like I told you, four granddaughters. I have three daughters. We read the little stories of Esther. We've got the sweet books of Queen Esther and the beauty pageant of Queen Esther and how beautiful she was and how the king chose her. But we have sanitized this story. We have romanticized this story, making it something like a Cinderella story, haven't we? And really, we do this, of course, for you know children and things like that. But really, it wasn't like a Miss America pageant, okay? It was really quite terrible. It was more like trafficking, if you think about it. These women were ripped out of their homes. Esther had the misfortune, in a sense, at, in the immediate. Now, I know God had a bigger plan, but in the immediate of being beautiful because she was noticed and she was taken. That's what the word says, taken. She didn't volunteer. She was probably in her teens. 
She was a young virgin, as were the other girls who were taken. And they were taken, don't forget, into the palace of a petulant, drunk, fleshy king who had a penchant for young virgins. Ew, right? Ew. My little Novali goes, ew. <laughs> My two-year-old, we love doing that. But it is kind of ew, right? If you think about it. Would we want our daughters having this kind of no choice? Taken in, given all these beauty preparations to eventually be brought into the king's bedroom for a night and then put into the court of the concubines where they would spend the rest of their life. They couldn't go home. Unless they conceived that night, they would never have children. And that was their life from young, 15, 16 years old. This woman has been taken she feels helpless and hopeless, I'm sure. But given these circumstances, it would be very understandable for Esther to be angry and fearful, depressed, combative. But this was not the case with her. I believe because she had been raised in that godly home with Mordecai, knowing Yahweh, knowing the God who sees me, she was able to conduct herself in such a way I would even venture to say with joy that drew the favor of the, of the eunuch. She stood out. She stood out to him. She stood out to the king. There was something that set her apart. And it must have been this character she had, this joy, this peace, this presence of calm. Aren't people like that so attractive? Aren't you drawn to them? I believe that her faith in God sustained her. So... This is where I want to take a minute here and define then what joy is. And if you take notes, you know, maybe write this down because we're going to refer to it. Joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life. The settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life. It is the quiet confidence that ultimately everything will be all right. And joy is the determined choice to praise God in all circumstances. The determined choice to praise God in all circumstances. If you notice there, we have three things. We have conviction. What do you think about? We have confidence. What do you have faith in? and you have choice, what do you do? Biblical joy is not contingent on circumstances or happenings. Happiness is, happiness is based on natural events. Joy is supernatural. It goes above nature. It's supernatural. Joy is anchored in the character of God. It rests on the understanding that God is sovereign over all the details of my life. We choose joy based on what we believe about God. Julian of Norwich said, the fullness of joy is to behold God in everything. In everything. Wrong thoughts about God, girls, and we'll talk about thought life because we're going to get into spiritual warfare later. Wrong thoughts about God, I assure you, will stifle joy in your life, in my life. When I don't understand his character, there was a quote by Tim Hansel that I read. It said, pain is inevitable, 
but misery is optional. We cannot avoid pain, but we can avoid joy. We can choose not to be joyful. We can choose to be miserable. So let's talk about this. This first key to joy is understanding God's sovereignty. And let me tell you, God's sovereignty is all over the book of Esther. His name might not be mentioned, but he's everywhere. He's everywhere in it. The king's name is mentioned like ad nauseum. You know, that man's name, I'm like, believe me, I'm stumbling it over here. If anybody has a better pronunciation, let me know. I want to call him Xerxes. I don't know if that's like, whatever. That, that was one of his historical names too. <clears throat> but he might be mentioned a lot, but you know what? He is not in control, but God is. <laughs> so if you look in verses 19 to 23, it says there in 19, let's just look at 19. When virgins were gathered a second time, huh? They just had this big feast for Esther. I thought that was it, right? He's got his new queen. Aren't we done? This guy is still bringing in the virgins and having this, this dalliance with these girls. So that's another big ooh moment, right? See, the joy we glean from the book of Esther has nothing to do with a romantic story. It has to do with God's handprints and fingerprints all over history and all over our life. And girls, if you look at your life, he is always at work. Don't you look back in your childhood, even the hard stuff. I look back in the hard stuff. God was there with me. He was drawing me even as obstinate, broken, partying, whatever. He was there little by little. I could tell you the times when he would just break through. And I was a little nervous about it, to be honest with you, because I was a hardened-hearted kid and teenager, and there was times I would get really overwhelmed with the idea of Jesus dying on the cross for me. I was raised Catholic. We would, 12 years of Catholic high school, uh, school, and I would be brought into the stations of the cross with all my other friends. And they'd be over there, you know, chewing gum and, you know. And for some reason, it really would impact me. I would find myself fighting back tears and I was like, cool, you know, I want to be cool. And I would stifle those tears and I thought, oh no, this mean I'm going to be a nun, you know? I was like, oh, those nuns, they always were like, sending me to detention. I was like, no, because I started to feel like I had this emotional response to God. And I just thought, no normal person has emotional response to God. You got to be a nun or a priest to have that. <laughs> I'm so glad I found there was a thing called the Protestant church. No. <laughs> but, you know, um, this, is, this is what I look back and I know that was the Lord drawing me, drawing me. He, isn't he the hound of heaven? Couldn't you trace his, his footsteps? You ever read that poem, The Hound of Heaven? I fled him down the alleys and the dark byways, and I could hear his footsteps behind me, coming for me. I love that. So we're going to see that all through this book. And starting in chapter 3, I'm going to start summarizing. But in chapter 3, we meet this man called Haman, and he's an Agagite, which is a descendant of the Ammonites, which were sworn enemies of Israel. And he, those were the ones that Saul was supposed to annihilate, and he didn't. And he was given a place in Xerxes' kingdom of great power and influence. And he had everyone bowing down and paying homage to him, but there was one person who would not, and that was Mordecai, and it galled him 
that this guy would not bow down to him because he was a Jew and he would not bow down to a man. He would not pay homage to a man. So in retaliation, Haman gets permission from the king to exterminate not only Mordecai, but his whole people group. He casts lots. He decides on what month it'll be. He's super rich, Haman. He goes to the king, again, very fleshly, worldly man. He doesn't care. He doesn't really care. He's like, all right, go ahead, go for it because he's going to Haman's going to give him money for it. He's going to enrich the king's resources, which he probably need after an unsuccessful war. And he said, in 11 months, we're going to start this, this genocide of the Jews. They said it right there. It's almost torturous to put that in the people's mind now, like trying to defend themselves, trying to figure out what their course will be. So this news gets out. The Jews, Mordecai included, go into mourning, sackcloth, ashes, reaping, warning. Obviously, they're marked people. And when and Esther gets wind of this in the palace, and she's like, what's going on? This is how isolated they would be kept. You know, they weren't really part of the narrative of things going on in their world. They were just little concubine, little women being kept in little, you know? But she got wind that Mordecai had was in a sackcloth the morning and in her sweetness she sent him some clothes like tell him to feel better what's going on and he sent her the edict he said don't you know what's going on this is what's happening our our people are under attack and we're going to be exterminated so he sends her this in, in chapter four and he says to them Give her, he's, they have a servant going back and forth. And in verse eight, he says, he also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction when it was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her. And that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. So Hathik returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Then Esther spoke to Hathik and gave him a command for Mordecai. She said, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law. Put them all to death. Except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself have not even been called to go into the king for 30 days. So they told Mordecai Esther's words and Mordecai told them to answer Esther, listen, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. Here we see, speaking very loudly, of two people have come into the forefront, Mordecai and Esther. And they're both really needed to tap into the sovereignty of God in dire circumstances. We see Mordecai has this assurance in his response, which we talked about, that settled assurance, that finds out, that's, that is based in, I should say, and its roots are found, that assurance, its roots are found in God's faithfulness to Israel. Mordecai is convinced that God Yahweh, oh sweet baby, Yahweh, Jehovah, will remain true to his people and deliver them one way or the other. Don't you hear that confidence in him? 
that assurance. See, the Jewish people, the writings of the Jewish people rehearsed the mighty acts of God. He took us from Egypt. He delivered us here. Our shoes didn't wear out. This, he gave us manna in the wilderness. He brought water from the rock. They rehearsed the goodness. Look at the Psalms, right? Rehearsed the goodness of God in their life. So Mordecai knew. Listen, God made a covenant with Abraham. He made a covenant with David. God does not lie. One way or the other, we're surviving this. But maybe you've been here to be part of it. Maybe you, Esther, are here for such a time as this, even though it was horrible, even though you're ripped from your home, even though. But God will use this, even this, to save his people. He had a conviction in God's sovereignty. Esther, of course, of course, she's just like us. We wavered at first. She was nervous. She, she admitted she felt helpless in her circumstances, her own lack of real power or ability even. But nonetheless, she dug down deep in her faith and she found a resolution to trust in God's providential hand and finds the courage to cast her lot on the Lord, right? To put her faith in God and his perfect plan for her and her people did she remember the writings of Job? You know, I have to believe that, that they would speak the scriptures in her home when she was growing up, Mordecai being the godly man he was. In Job 23, 10 to 14, had she heard this said and read at home? But he knows the way that I take. And when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. I've kept his way. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. But he is unique, and who can make him change? But whatever his soul desires, that he does. For he performs what is appointed for me, and many such things are with him. Or does she remember Psalm 139, 15 and 16? My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest part of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book, Lord, all the days written for me were fashioned for me, and they were written in your book before there was even one of them. See, we can have that kind of confidence too. If I perish, I perish. Do you know, fretting about your death, worrying about, it does not hasten it or, or push it off. God already knows the day and the hour. He already knows. So we can rest in him, right? Bobby always says, we're immortal until the Lord takes us home. There's nothing that can put you out until it's God's time. And then we always go with God's time because God's time is best. I believe Esther was raised hearing that and had grown confident. You know, we all go through difficult, hard circumstances like this, but we have to believe that even the hard stuff is passed through his loving hands. You know, I struggle. There's times I've gone through things and I've struggled. God, where are you in this? Where are you in this? Am I alone? Has anyone else ever gone through that? And my husband has encouraged me at times when I've been distressed over things. And he has said to me, Liz, when, you can't, when there is so much that you don't know, like will the diagnosis be okay? Will this medicine work? Will the chemo work? Will my prodigal return? Will my marriage be healed? When you don't know, trust what you do know. God is all wisdom. He knows best. God is all power. 
He does what's best, and he is all love. He wants what's best for you, as sweet Amanda reminded us. This is the realization can give us biblical joy in the midst of trying circumstances. Amy Carmichael wrote, joy is not gush. Joy is not mere jolliness. Joy is perfect acquiescence, acceptance and rest in God's will, whatever comes. Isn't that a perfect quote for this section? If I perish, I perish. Perfect acquiescence in what God has planned. Maybe you've been brought here for such a time as this. It's knowing way down deep in our hearts and souls, Romans 8, 28. For I know all things work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. So I'm going to end here now, girls. But at the end of each session, I want us, one of the things I want us as a takeaway, and what I'm really, for my own life too, I'm just speaking this into myself all the days, joy can be cultivated in our life. It must be cultivated. Joy can be cultivated. And that word cultivated, I kind of can really resonate with. Because where I live in Dutchess County, which is like I said, about an hour outside of New York City, it very quickly, as you go up that Hudson River, the one that, from New York Harbor, it is lush and a deciduous forests in a river valley. In fact, it, when you, it is really beautiful. Did someone say that? <laughs> You got to come visit me. <laughs> Definitely during the fall. It was hard to leave. <laughs> it was one of our peak times. But anyway, it is a beautiful place. And, but there was, those forests have been cleared to make neighborhoods. But we've got forests all around us. So we'll have a neighborhood. I'm literally two miles from a Galleria. Okay, a big mall. Two miles. I, I, I could go to Olive Garden. I could walk to Olive Garden if I wanted to. However, I have packs of deer in my backyard coyotes and wild turkeys. I'll be vacuuming and I look out my front window and there's a wild turkeys, <laughs> patch of wild turkeys in my front lawn. The, the, the forest wants the land back. We feel like that all the time. The forest wants the land back. They're not pleased that you have created a lawn. They want it. <laughs> those trees want it. And those animals want it. They're not going anywhere. And so it's a constant battle to cultivate gardens and things like that. It takes effort. And so the first thing when you go to cultivate an area that you want to stake out for your garden to grow something there, like vegetables or flowers, you've got to dig up that soil and you've got to look at that soil. You have got to assess that soil and say, what's, what's the deal with the soil? What kind of soil do I got here? What's in it? That's where I want to start in our cultivation process. Right now, for maybe a minute, as I close in prayer, maybe in your book even, I want you to look at the soil of your own heart in relationship to joy and say, where am I at? Where am I at with this? If there was a joy quotient on a scale to zero to 10, where are you? What would other people, maybe we should just switch papers and <laughs> say, what would the person next to us say our joy quotient is? And that's where we have to start, right? Evaluation. We just, we just read the book of Nehemiah and studied the book of Nehemiah. That night that he went around that wall was very important. He had to assess where they were at, the starting point, right? Isn't that important? 
We're supposed to live lives examined by the Holy Spirit. So take a minute, just a minute, and just be honest. I did it myself. I am doing it myself. I'm doing it daily. Where am I on this journey with joy? Do I truly, truly, not just because it's the right answer, but do I truly believe in God's sovereignty in my life? Am I struggling with that idea, with that concept? Do I really, really, really believe it's possible for me to be a joyful person, for me to, to walk in joy? Do I really believe it? I know Liz is saying it, I know that the theme of our retreat is, but honestly, Lord, examine my heart. Am I, in any way, am I really, am I buying into this or buying into lies? And just do a little, 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 ask the Lord to show you. And he will. And then just write maybe a little prayer. You know, this is where I'm at, Lord. Please, you know, this is where I'd like to be. So as you do that, I'm just going to end in prayer here. Lord, thank you, God, that you tell us that we can have joy even in the midst of difficult circumstances. Lord, I admit to you, God, there's many times I stumble in this area, God. I fret. You know why I know I stumble, Lord? Because I fret. I worry and I overthink things and I act as if you're not in control sometimes and I act like I'm in control or I act like other people are in control of my life and I get really bent out of shape. And Lord, help us all here today to grow in that settled assurance that you are truly in control of all the details of my life. And despite how difficult some of those things are, God, you promised us that you were going to work it all for good and for your glory, God. And you know better than us, Lord. So, Lord, we just even now show us our heart and create a new heart in us, Lord. A new heart of faith and trust in you. And we ask this in your son's precious name, the name of Jesus. Amen.